morning, family, friends, and guests, and welcome to our worship service on this Easter Sunday. Here are our following announcements for the week. You have been invited and also make sure that you share our next food distribution on Saturday, April the 17th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. The pickup location is at Greater Little Zion Baptist Church and the food is first come first serve. Every week we have our prayer meeting on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. and our virtual adult Bible study at 7.30 p.m. through Zoom. On the weekends, we also have our Sunday schools. Our youth and our young adult Bible study slash Sunday school on Saturdays at 10 a.m. and our adult Sunday school class every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. We thank you so much for joining us on this Easter Sunday and pray that you have a blessed rest of your day.
this is the day that God has given us. It's Easter Sunday. Let us rejoice and be glad within it. I certainly hope you've had a wonderful, blessed week as we have left the, the, uh, the moment of in which in the previous Sunday we were celebrating Palm Sunday and this week in which we call Holy Week as we went through these five days culminating of course in Good Friday as our Lord climbed the hill of Golgotha and encountered that cross that provided redemption for eternal life at least for the payment of sins and yet from that cross he was buried in that tomb and it is representative by today we have reason to shout because it commemorates Resurrection Sunday as we rejoice in our Lord who has been risen from the grave. And so today we are dealing with an unusual passage in reference to resurrection uh, because we've had an unusual year since last March as a result of the pandemic and it would be such fitting effort to deal with an unusual passage. So we're going back to Genesis chapter 37 and we're dealing with our story of Joseph as Joseph is comparative to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both have familial experiences and we are going to tap into how through Joseph going down in the pit and yet there comes by those who will help him and bring him out victoriously that he may ascend to that which God has in store. We parallel that to what happens to our Lord Jesus Christ as he is taken from that cross, that glorious space in which redemption was purchased, handles what has to be handled in that borrowed tomb. But early on this Sunday morning, he got up and he has arisen with all power. And so hopefully this morning across the time, we'll make that parallel. Genesis chapter 37 and again, I want to read verse 18 through 20, but we're going to go past that as we begin to exegete the text and expose the great things that God has in store. Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, here's what it says. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in a distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns or the pit. We can tell our father a wild animal or beast has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Again, this is part two of the message we provided on last Sunday. Are you ready for the task? Are you ready for the task? Part two. I cannot help but yield to the temptation to believe as we read this story that Joseph could very well be gripped with bewilderment and perhaps some sense of caution. He knew he had received from God not just a dream, but two dreams. He could see his future by way of his own imagination in which God had shaped. He was seeing what was not yet a reality. He was actually stepping into what we now call walking by faith. Clarity for Joseph was not an issue. However, I think what struck him was the responses, the responses he received after sharing what he had expected. He certainly could have handled his friends or his neighbors who would have rejected his dreams. That would have been tolerable by Joseph. But he didn't expect for his siblings to provide such rejection, let alone his own father. And to intensify his vision experience comes that peril of the unknown. 
He has no idea, beginning in verse 18 and concluding in verse 20, that there is a plot, a plot by his brothers to kill him. Those words, here comes the dreamer, let's kill him. Let's take him and throw him into a pit. And let's say that a wild beast has deviled him. And then let's see what becomes of his dreams. They said one to another, here comes the dreamer. He is unaware of the plot. And when you think about the Joseph story, when you think about the story of Jesus, our Lord very well was aware of the plot against him, but it still did not negate the bewilderment and the issue of hurt, knowing that those whom he loved so graciously, among them was one who worked with religious officials to plot killed him. The unknown to Joseph's life will no doubt be a shock to him. And the Bible says, of course, that when he goes looking for his brothers and he's not aware that they have moved and someone informed him that his brothers had moved and yet when he sees them in the horizon, they see him. Here comes the dreamer. And their idea is to implement their plot. But graciously, the story informs us that when God has a plan for your life, no matter what the plot might be, when God has a divine assignment to which he wants to carry out in your life, and you are going to be the instrument to which God uses to bring to fruition what he has promised and what your faith is believing for. No matter the plot, God has an amazing way in how to preserve you. And the same happens for Joseph. God moves to the forefront a preserver, a rather unknown character that one would not expect at least not on one hand. Now he's the oldest of Jacob's son. His name is Reuben. By Reuben being the oldest, you certainly would think that if anything's going to happen to his brothers, that he would step in. But Reuben has also perhaps another issue in his life. Reuben is the firstborn. He's the eldest of both Jacob and Leah. Reuben's name means behold a son. And that's the case because it's Leah who makes the claim in Genesis 29. She says, the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Remember, Leah wanted Jacob's love so much that she thought by just having children that Jacob would love her only to later learn that that doesn't get you love. And the Bible says that God had placed in the life of Joseph clearly to us a preserver to help him keep that vision alive despite the plot that his brothers are trying to implement to kill him. Reuben's declaration in the text simply says, particularly in verse 21, let's not kill him. That's not the right thing to do. Conscience kicks in for Reuben. He says in verse 22, let's not shed any blood. We, we don't need to do that. Reuben was an interesting son in that his plan eventually was, even when they threw him, Joseph, into a pit, he was going to come back later and retrieve Joseph. That's clear to us in the text, perhaps out of his own guilt mind for something he had done earlier. If you read in the text in Genesis chapter 35, I believe it is, it's there where we're introduced to Reuben who has sex with Jacob's concubine. 
build high. And later on in Genesis chapter 47, I believe it is, it maybe 48, when he ends up losing his firstborn birthright of strength and preeminence in the family, Jacob takes it away because he finds out that his son has slept with his concubine whom Jacob has had children by. In fact, in Genesis 49, Jacob tells us that Reuben, he tells him that Reuben is as unstable as water and he won't receive the preeminence of the blessing. And maybe Reuben decided that this is a moment in which I can perhaps redeem myself, but his motives are incorrect. To suggest that we will kill him, throw him in a pit, and then say a wild beast has killed him? We'll tell that to father? Reuben can be very well compared by way of resemblance to Judas. Judas, while demonstrating assistance to be helpful as one of Jesus' disciples, has another sinister plan regarding Jesus on his way to the cross. Betrayal. You will know who he is, says Judas, to the soldiers, I will kiss him. You'll know he's the one. You've got to always pay attention to people's motives. I constantly inform people that no matter how good a person is, watch the motive. The motive will tell you the genuineness of what they are attempting to do. And no matter how hard they try to hide it, motive will eventually make itself known. And it's important because it'll tell you a lot about the intention, whether that person's there to either assist you or assass assassinate you. And that's what we find in both Reuben and Judas. Both of them make use of Joseph's words later to his brothers in the latter chapters. What you meant for evil, God meant it for the good. I think as we keep looking at this narrative as it unfolds for us, that we will discover that as I said before, Reuben, if you look at verse I believe it's right here in verse 22. Reuben is planning to come back, says the end of the verse, secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So what do they do? They rip Joseph off of his multicolored garment. They placed him in a pit. The Hebrew carries the connotation that they forced him there. No doubt he fought back, wondering why they were doing what they were doing. They forced him in a pit to which he could not get himself out of. Passing was a caravan of camels, Ishmaelite traders who were bringing their goods to Egypt to sell that they may make profit. And there stands another character that we certainly would not think. Judah, another of Jacob's sons, Joseph's brother. Judah says in verse 26 to his brother, why would we kill him? What will we gain by killing him? His blood would give us a guilty conscience instead of hurting him. Let's just sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. That's because... Whenever God has a plan, and no matter what kind of plot evil has, God also inserts a preserver. That's who Reuben is. He's a preserver to make sure that it is God's will that Joseph becomes what Joseph is intended to be. And then when God uses the preserver, 
he uses another to propel Joseph. He takes Judah and Judah suggests, let's just sell him. Forget killing him, sell him. And Judah, in the selling of Joseph to the Ishmaelite travelers, propels Joseph up to another space in which Joseph ends up once again carrying out what God has in store only to discover that God uses another person. Read the text closely. It says to us here in verse 28 that when the Ishmaelites who were Midianite traders don't try to figure out between the Ishmaelite and Midianites they were both intermarried tribes and so they were well familiar of each other and so when you saw one you would very well see the other the Bible says that when they came by Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him here it is just like Jesus except for Joseph they sold him for 20 pieces of silver and Jesus Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver and they took him to Egypt look at the text says sometime later Reuben returned just to get Joseph out of the cistern he's not there when he discovered that Joseph was missing he tore his clothes in grief then he went back to his brothers and says what have you done where is he what will we do now what will I do then the brothers killed a young goat dipped his multicolored coat in it, took it back to their father and said that a wild beast has killed Joseph. And when you look at the text, it says in verse 34 that Jacob tore his clothes, dressed himself in mourning, and he mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He says, I will go to my grave mourning my son, he would say, and then he would weep. Here go God again. In the meantime, says the text, the Midianite traders arrive in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Potiphar, was the captain of Pharaoh's palace army. Why is this important? Because if you notice, at each step, God provides the necessary persons to make sure that Joseph's road to success, although it is filled with obstacles, and it's an obstacle course. Joseph is going to get there, but he has to be prepared for the task because it's not an easy one. And the same holds true for each of us. As I think that the road of success for Joseph was one of one particular mindset and direction, yet God turned Joseph's life and employed another direction. Like you and I, Joseph didn't anticipate, like you and I, financial deficiency. We never anticipate on this journey lost employment. We never anticipate as we are trying to catapult ourselves to that space of success, prosperity, progress. We never anticipate a sickness that would give us a setback, an industry cutback. We never considered a global pandemic crisis. Joseph didn't anticipate the loss of church, neither did you and I, in-person fellowship. We never anticipated, as Joseph, I think, did, didn't as well, family disruptions, the missing of family reunions, the missing of the attending to your favorite entertainment spot. No one anticipated the purchasing and the wearing of a mask, hand sanitizing extensively. 
the taking of vaccinations, the impartation of virtual meetings and virtual schooling. But God obviously had another plan. Just as he interrupted Joseph's life and changed or placed obstacles across the course or allowed those obstacles to evolve, so God does in our own life, raising the question, are you ready for the task? In the process of all of those interruptions, we don't mind when things take some time to work themselves out. But when they end up spanning across a great deal of time, like in the case of Joseph, several years, we read the Joseph story like Jesus. We witness some episodes that beg the question, as this thing evolves over time, are we ready for the task? As we quickly move to Genesis chapter 39, we now come to the space in which not only did the brothers thought that they had brought an end to Joseph's existence, they had no idea that God had already intervened and worked all things together for his good. They didn't know that God was going to work what they meant for evil to end up being for the good. And now as a result, We are in chapter 39 in Potiphar's house. The last time we saw Joseph, he was in a pit. He was in what we might define as a miserable molding pit, the test. And I don't want to overlook this point because I want you to understand for Joseph, this test was this empty pit. But the same played out for Jesus. Jesus. The test was a full cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. For you and I, it's an uncomfortable place that God teaches us hope and teaches us faith and teaches us perseverance and teaches us to fight and teaches us to keep dreaming and teaches us not to give up and to teach us to trust in God and to believe in yourself. We get to learn in this crazy but yet effective, miserable molding pot the words of Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And if you take a moment just to look at where God has brought you, there have been many afflictions. If you put us all in a room, we would all have different stories and we would all have to tell how those afflictions had an incredible way of affecting us, but we can't ignore the second line. But the Lord delivers us out of them all. And that's going to be the testimony of Joseph. It's miserable because it's lonely and it's empty, it's molding because there are lessons that we have to learn that can't be taught otherwise or in other places. And once again, when Joseph's brother's plan had as its motive evil, what they meant for evil, God turned it out for the good, In the midst of your own miserable molding pit, what was meant to destroy you only end up being an instrument of deliverance for you. The pit gave Joseph his greatest possibilities. In that pit, Joseph learned a lot about himself and God In that pit, you have learned a lot about yourself and God. In fact, you may be still there in the pit right now. And it's God's teaching you how to trust, how to believe, how to think creatively, how to have vision, how to have expectation, how to have perseverance, how to not give up, how to not give in, but to dig deep and to have great expectations. 
in that pit, that's where Joseph discovered that he had what might be argued an unusual ally, Reuben. Reuben put him there, Midianites and the descendants of Midian. It's interesting when you look at the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham and Keturah and Ishmaelites were the descendants of Ishmael who was the son of Abraham and Hagar. I'm always fascinated how in the family God manages to keep this thing and they managed to transport and to show that even in the pit God never leaves you alone. See, the miserable molding pit is not just yours only, but you've got good company. Daniel had his own molding pit. It's miserable because you're all alone. There are no other ways of getting you out. And in the midst of Daniel's pit, there are lions, and yet God pays visitation. And an unlikely ally becomes Daniel's deliverer, the lions themselves. The Hebrew boys have a miserable molding pit. It's called a fiery furnace. They are thrown in there, and yet in the midst of that furnace, they're being shaped. And in their shaping, the onlookers who place them in there can, ex can observe that they're never alone. When the king comes back to look in and see what's happening to those boys in the fire, he knew that he threw three, but as the text says, he asked his servants, did we not throw three? Why do I see a fourth one like the son of man in the fire? And that's because God never leads you in the pit alone. He may come up in a usual way, may show up in a manner in which you never expected, but he shows up to give you strength and to give you hope and to give you encouragement and to help you know that this is just a temporary state, but you coming out of this. All I wanna know, says God, are you ready for the task? I want to just recap what's happening in Joseph's life. Three unlikely sources that God is using in this crisis. Number one, Reuben, the oldest brother who recommended the pit instead of death, but who planned to come back and rescue Joseph, Genesis 37, beginning in verse 22. Number two, Judah, the fourth brother, felt it was just as good to just sell Joseph for those 20 pieces of silver, chapter 37, verse 26, and he does that. And then these Ishmaelites slash Midianites, both descendants of Abraham, Hagar and Keturah, who intermarry, but it's interesting, they're not in the covenant. They're not in the covenant that God makes with Abraham and that Abraham makes with Isaac and that Isaac has with Jacob. They're outside of the covenant. And yet God uses them, which says to us that when you're in the pit, you may not have the persons, the people that you expect. You may experience rescue from an unlikely person that very well may be opposite of you, may have been your enemy. But I want you to know the pit is where God makes you, the pit was where God made Jesus. While in that miserable pit, I want you to understand, you, you've got to let the pit speak to you, but you've also got to speak to the pit. Because the pit may very well say that this is a place of finality, a place of destruction, a place of detour, but you've got to turn around and say to the pit, no, this is just a temporal moment. This is a stepping stone to something greater. This is a reshaper as well as an informer 
of something that God is doing. He did it with Jesus. Even though in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wanted that cup full of the sin of humanity to pass, his words, nevertheless, it's the will of God and he fulfills it. He didn't want Gethsemane on the course. It's an obstacle. And what deepens the pain of the obstacle is the disciples who were with him who couldn't stay awake to pray with him. And yet Jesus found the strength to tell them, sleep on now, but the time is coming when you won't be able to sleep. And you'll miss me. You'll miss that time that you should have shared with me. It's a moment in the pit in which God is informing us that we need to pay attention to God. So I want to drop a couple things on you as we move to resurrection. Because remember, although Joseph has been dropped in this miserable pit, it's the Ishmaelites who symbolically, along with the Midianites, bring him up out of the pit to symbolize glorious resurrection. Although Pilate and his military detachment attempts to silence Jesus by crying out to the crowd, what do you want me to do with him? They cry out, crucify him and give us Barabbas. And although Pilate says, I find no fault in him, they could really find no fault in Joseph other than the fact that he was a dreamer. Sometimes people don't have a fault in you, it's just that you dream. And because you dream, they can't handle the fact that your life has the potential of being bigger than what their own lives have envisioned. And so as a result, When Pilate gives him Jesus, the gods perform their humiliating aspect of striking him across the face and stripping him of his own clothes. And says the Gospel of Mark, when they were finished, they put his own clothes back on him. They put a purple robe to taunt him and say that he's a king. They put a crown of thorns on his head and then they led him out to crucify him. They led him out up to what they call the Via Dolorosa, the road that leads to Calvary. Their plot they felt was executed when they was moving him up the hill and yet God pulled in a preserver by the name of Simon of Cyrene who helped him bury, bury the cross, carry the cross on his shoulders up the hill. Can't you see how God has brought in a Simon of Cyrene in your own life to help you carry the cross and to bring you out of the pit? And although they get him to the hill and they stretch him wide and hang him high, they nailed his hands to the cross. They spike him in his feet. And they stand him suspended between heaven and earth on the hill between two thieves and they spear him in the side. The cosmos of God's divine working began to respond to God moving in the midst of his son's life and something was happening. The sun refused to shine. The earth had its own earthquake so much so that it shook the prison doors and those who had been bound for years were set free. And yet when he dies, he declares those glorious seven sayings and he culminates in that final one. Not only it is finished, but Lord, into your hands 
I give my spirit. When he dies, he dies until death got tired. And he is hanging suspended between heaven and earth and yet Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus goes and converses with Pilate. Can we have his body? There's a word in Deuteronomy that suggests that no person who's crucified hung can hang there overnight. It will be a curse to the people. And so they take him from the cross. And Joseph says, because of who he is, he can lie in state in my tomb. And all of Jesus' enemies felt that this was the end of him. They saw him die. Can't you imagine? Those brothers may have thought this was the end of Joseph. They saw him in the pit. And even though they sold him to the Ishmaelite, him going away, they felt they would never see him again, not knowing how God would not only propel him, but how God would promote him. And when they put Jesus in the tomb, And all on that Friday evening, and all on that Saturday, he wrestles with that which is in the underworld. And I want you to understand that as we get ready to go to the resurrection, that in the moment in which God has you in this miserable molding pit, there's some things you've got to do. Number one, I want you to maintain your expectation and excitement even when you are in discomfort. Can't you see Joseph in that discomfort space of not only the pit, but even being sold? And yet his expectation, I believe, birthed him being transitioned to Potiphar's house because he didn't allow himself to consider death to die in that space. Don't you dare give up because it's a dark, painful, difficult moment right now. Remember, you have to wrestle with, am I ready for the task? And I know you are. And in this moment in which it seems dark, you keep your expectation, but you also keep your excitement. In the words of Donald Lawrence, I think it is, sometimes you have to encourage yourself, pat your own self on the back. You have to give yourself the encouragement that you need to maintain your excitement, even when it's discomforting. The second thing I want you to understand is that when you are in that molding pit, understand it's okay to be excited about what's being birthed in you while disappointing about what you got to go through. Although I'm excited, I'm still disappointed that I got to go through this. It's God's obstacle course. There are lots of obstacles that I have to encounter. Yes. And the weeping always shows up in the night, in the darkness of the journey. But there's a joy that comes in the morning. And that's what Joseph is telling us as Jesus wrestles with the underworld all Friday and all Saturday there is a darkness there is a weeping that's going on because he has to deal with evil but there's a joy that's coming on Sunday morning Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane he weeped when Jesus looked out over Jerusalem, he wept. But even going through that with his excitement, it was still a disappointment knowing that so much more could have happened. I, mean, I don't know how things would have been different for Joseph. I and mean, I don't think things would have been different for Jesus because he had a purpose and God's purpose was he was on his way to the cross. He's got there. He's died there. He's buried there. God is promoting Joseph as he puts him in Potiphar's house. And then I want you to understand a third thing. While you're in the molding pit, manage your excitement, manage your discomfort, 
and manage your disappointment all at the same time. In other words, keep your cool because victory is on the way. Can you imagine the parties that they had, the enemies of Jesus on that Friday and Saturday rejoicing that he's no longer here? Can you imagine the many nights in which Joseph's brothers knew that he was gone now to Egypt and no telling what would have happened to him if at least he's a slave and we don't have to worry about Joseph ever seeing him again. But what they never anticipated was that a part of God's plan was a hunger pandemic that would hit Egypt. And of all people, the prime minister would be Joseph. That's who God would use <laughs> as he promoted him in Pilate's, in Potiphar's house. Because the pit may not be the only obstacle on the course, although Joseph is rescued from the pit, there is something else. And then I'm, I'm going to be done for the day. On the way, Joseph has to handle the miserable pit. But Joseph also has to encounter a Mrs. Potiphar. When you begin to read the text here, he passes the test of the pit, but now he has to handle Mrs. Potiphar, the temptation. The meretricious Mrs. Potiphar, that Adjective simply means that she's attractive, but she, in reality, to Joseph, she has no value, no integrity. Because that's what the enemy wants to do. Let me close by telling you that there's always a Mrs. Potiphar. When we begin to read here in the text in Genesis chapter 39, let me pick up in verse 2, and then we're almost done. Verse 1 actually says, When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was a captain of the guard for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Joseph couldn't help but be blessed. <laughs> no matter what the plot was, God always had prosperity in the mind for Joseph. No matter what the plot. God had a plan. His brothers had a plot. God brought in a preserver. He brought in someone who would take and propel Joseph from the pit to the Ishmaelites. They promoted Joseph by selling him to Potiphar and now Joseph is enjoying prosperity by being in Potiphar's house because God blessed him. Look at that. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar so he made Joseph his personal attendant, put him in charge of his whole entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of the master's household and prosper of property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake, because of Joseph's sake. And I want to tell you that one reason why the enemy is trying so bad to cause you to abort or to miscarry in the dream is because God has a plan to use you to bless others and the enemy knows it. That's what the enemy has in plan. Because here is Joseph who is promoted from being a devalued slave to now being the person who value all things as the comptroller of Egypt. He's in charge of Potiphar's affairs. Everything was going well. Progress was obvious and Joseph was no doubt excited about everything that God had done. 
It didn't look like it was going well when Jesus was at Calvary. It didn't look like it was going well when they took him from the cross and buried him in the tomb. But I want to call one witness that I'm taking my seat, Mary, who came to see him in the tomb on that Sunday morning, only to find the angelic choir singing at the top of the grave in the tomb, posing the most life-transforming question, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Mary says, I just want you to tell me where you laid him. That's all I'm looking for. I just want to be able to spice him up as we do for those who have gone on. He's not here. He's risen. It's the joyous celebration that Mary would later come to be able to proclaim as she leaves the tomb, who she perceives to be a gardener, is the resurrected Christ who has not yet ascended to his father to attain full glory, but yet still in the earth. And he tells her, go tell the disciples, the brothers, meet me in Galilee. And she becomes the proclamator of the resurrection gospel. I just came to tell you this morning that in this miserable pit sometime to which we find ourselves on this obstacle course of life, God uses us to resurrect us from these pits that we may become preachers of the resurrection, that we may tell people weeping might endure for the night, but if you hold on to God's unchanging hand, joy is coming in the morning. Are you ready for the task? You are. Your resurrection is in this moment. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that today somebody grabs a hold of the Joseph story, makes comparison to that of Jesus and his resurrection, and see how we can be brought back from what seems to be destruction. Save somebody's life today, Lord, who calls on your name. And I pray for those who call for your deliverance. Hear their cry. Send them what they need. And even if they have to remain in the pit for a bit more time, send them your comfort, Lord, and your strength. We'll give you the praise and glory for you're worthy of such. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. This is our joy to celebrate with you on this Easter Sunday, knowing that someone today is going to experience breakthrough. Life is going to be different. This is going to be a new beginning. And we rejoice with you that today your life has launched into a new direction. We would love to hear from you. If you would, at the end of this service, you will see several ways in which you can contact us to let us know and to inform us of what God is doing in your life. We'd love to hear from you. If you are not a member of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church, we'd love to have you as a member of the congregation that we may be your pastor and your family and we can adopt you as a part of the family as well. We certainly expressed our joy and gratitude to those of you who continue to support the ministry and in your financial giving, you make this moment possible and we can only say thank you. We continue to encourage you to do so. While doing so, it enables us to be able to come again on another Sunday to share with you in the good news of Christ that we may continue to walk in spirit and in truth. Listen, I want you to enjoy this Resurrection Sunday and I want you to look forward to having a resurrected experience through the course of this week and always know that God loves you and so do I. I want you to have a blessed, wonderful, prosperous week in the Lord. In Jesus' name.